0: Hello, and welcome to When It Mattered, a podcast on how leaders are forged in critical moments and how they deal with and learn from adversity. I'm Chitra Raghavan. This episode is brought to you by Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups find their narrative. My guest today is Caroline Catlin. She's a writer and photographer and a brain cancer patient and survivor. Caroline's research and work in behavioral health and developmental trauma has inspired her to incorporate art into the process of caregiving and therapy and reforming the way health, illness, and disability are portrayed in the media. Her work has been featured in the New York Times, Boston Globe, Huffington Post, and other media outlets. Caroline, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. Tell us a little bit about yourself and and, and when and how you first realized that you had cancer
1: so i graduated from college in uh, 2015 and by the august by that august i was very sick i woke up with um, fevers every day for two weeks i had joint pain and muscle pain and intense fatigue Um, and that sort of started the process of trying to figure out what was going on for me I went to urgent care, I went to local doctors, and everyone dismissed me and said, you know, we think you have a mild cold. Um, I eventually was diagnosed with acute Lyme disease and pneumonia and began treatment for Lyme disease that we believed had continued and kind of become chronic. Um, And that continued for three years of trying to figure out what was wrong and treating me with antibiotics and different things until... My cognitive symptoms, so memory loss and um, word-finding issues, became worse, and I asked a, a multiple doctors and finally got one to agree to do an MRI, and that was uh, when they found the tumor. And how old were you then? I uh, was 27, and I am 27. It was, this, it was right after my 27th birthday, actually, that they, the first doctor agreed to do an MRI.
0: And what was the tumor, and where was it?
1: So the tumor was in my right parietal lobe. Um, it's, it was about um, golf ball sized, and it is an anaplastic astrocytoma, a grade three out of four. It's in the same class as glioblastomas, um, which um, quite a few people that um, have been in the news have passed away from, and it is the type of cancer that will likely return as a glioblastoma.
0: And glioblastoma is the same cancer that killed Senator Edward Kennedy, Senator John McCain, and also Bo Biden, son of former vice president and now presidential candidate Joseph Biden. Yeah, that's correct. And so, uh, and the right parietal lobe is uh, one of the four major lobes in the human brain, and it regulates sensory processing and language, among other things, which probably explains why you were having difficulty finding words and things like that.
1: Yeah, exactly. And they didn't exactly know. Um, a lot of my symptoms were non-traditional with the type of cancer I have and the type of uh, the area of the brain it was in. But I, when I started having more word finding issues and, and a few headaches, they, were, they started to be concerned. Um, most people who are diagnosed with, with my type of cancer and in this part of the brain have seizures. And for some reason, I never had a seizure. So that kind of made it more difficult to diagnose.
0: And what was that moment like for you when you were told that you had cancer, given that you'd had quite a bit of difficulty getting people to take you seriously?
1: Yeah, you know, it was both um, incredibly crushing and ultimately relieving. I think I had felt like I was crazy and that I was making up all these things because there wasn't any clear indication of what was going on. I had had my blood work done many times and because brain cancer doesn't often show up on your blood work, um, it there was nothing there was nothing that was indicating how sick I was. And so when I when I learned, I was devastated and I also was really grateful that I now knew what was going on.
0: To have something this serious at, at so young an age, you said it was crushing, how did you wrap your head around something like this and your heart?
1: Yeah, you know, I don't think I did at first. I think I really grieved. I remember leaving the hospital and just being absolutely devastated. I would wake up every morning with panic attacks, just trying to feel, feel out how to live with this diagnosis that would never go away. And the fact that I will never be free from cancer, it's very possible I can live a full life, but I'm not, you know, a life, as long as I'm alive, I am going to live as fully as i can but having this this diagnosis that it will come back and it will come back at some point more serious than it is now i wasn't sure how to live with that and i think it's still something i'm figuring out but i'm learning to be really present in the moment and focus on what's happening in front of me
0: and what has your treatment been like so far
1: um my treatment so far i've done 6 weeks of radiation so i did every day um for 6 weeks i went to radiation and then I did, I've just started chemo. So I've done three rounds of chemo. It's about once a month. I take, um, it's an oral type of chemo. So I do five days of chemo. And then I have like three weeks off. Um, and yeah, so that's been, and I had surgery to remove the tumor back in January. And I assume that was successful. It was. It They actually got um, the majority of the tumor. This type of cancer tends to, kind of have microscopic cells that invade other areas of your brain which is why it's so serious but um they did get a lot of it which was a, is really good for me
0: and and in order to undergo radiation you had to prepare yourself in other ways too
1: yeah i mean i had to i had to set up care so that i could get back and forth to radiation um i had to shave my head well i didn't you know it was one of those things where i knew the spot where radiation was hitting would, I would lose all my hair there. And so I decided to shave my head independently. Um, And yeah, that was really hard and really emotional for me.
0: And you also had to have fertility preservation.
1: Right. Yes. And I had to do that pretty quickly. Um, I had about uh, maybe a few days to decide and then like three weeks to do kind of the first half of IVF where I, um, basically, you know, preserved my eggs because chemo will destroy most of my chances of getting pregnant naturally.
0: And what do they say is your prognosis?
1: My prognosis is kind of across the board. Um, People, it really depends on the case. It's kind of random, but um, the first statistic said the average survival rate was three to five years. Um, With advances, they're seeing people live longer, but it's really kind of new that all these new treatments and um, the surgeries are getting better. So it's really unclear, but I do know that the tumor will return at some point in my life and it will likely return as a grade four.
0: Uh, do you have insurance to cover these costs? How are you managing?
1: <laughs> really, really good question. I have been, I'm on Medicaid because I'm not working. Um, so the state insurance and um since being diagnosed with cancer, it's been very helpful, but before that, when we didn't know what was going on and we were trying to figure it out, a lot of what I was doing, I had to figure out how to pay out of pocket or some other way because um, they were seeing nothing wrong, so all the kind of traditional and standard tests people wouldn't do. And you you talked about
0: how you were initially uh, not diagnosed correctly or and not taken seriously, and you've done some research since... You were diagnosed uh, to see whether this is actually a trend in when it comes to women and diagnosis, and how uh, people with traditionally less authority fare in the in the healthcare system.
1: Yeah, it's you know one thing that I learned is that young adults who um, have cancer are often diagnosed at much later stages for a variety of reasons, but one of those is that they're often not believed as much as. Um, other people. And they also don't tend to have consistent health coverage or health insurance coverage and the same doctors. So they end up being diagnosed at much more intense and and dangerous stages of cancer. And also um, women, people of color, um, queer folks, anyone who is marginalized or kind of in a less state of authority tend to be less believed about their pain. And their needs within the healthcare system, and that means that they aren't taken as seriously, and can be diagnosed or misdiagnosed um, later on, and you know, really not treated the way they should be often.
0: And so, what what advice would you give people who are in situations like yours? I imagine you're constantly advocating for yourself, even today.
1: I am. I'm. You know, I was the the reason that I have an MRI had an MRI. And the reason that further testing happened on my tumor, because at first they thought it was benign and didn't want to do further tests. Um, I think advocating for yourself is the most important thing you can do as someone who has a body and is experiencing any kind of symptoms. I think you have to make sure you trust yourself and you know your body best and whatever you can do to make sure you're heard and listened to. Um, even if that's pulling in extra support in some way, you know your body, and um, you should you should advocate for it.
0: And what has been your mental and emotional state since then, and and sort of the the things that you're learning about yourself since your diagnosis, and 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 in coping with uh, with this very very serious situation.
1: I think I have to take it day by day. I mean, I know everyone kind of says that and suggests that, but when I try to look towards the future and plan it's I can't really do that anymore. And I've always wanted to plan my whole future out, you know, from, from a five-year plan or whatever. And I, I can't do that. I kind of have to be where I am. And, um, you know, I think my life has sort of become lived in three month chunks because every three months I get a new scan to say, uh, whether the cancer's returned. And so I plan that far ahead and I enjoy my moments in every day. Um, I think it's really important to let yourself grieve. And I don't think the grieving process stops, you know, shortly after diagnosis. I think at least once a week, I'm kind of really feeling that, that hurt and I let that happen. And then I get up and I move on and I have fun with the people I love and that's how I'm getting through.
0: And one of the things that's really uh, evolved as a result of this is your own writing and your art and your creativity and your photography and Uh, talk a little bit about that. And then we'll talk about some of this photography that you've been doing.
1: I think that returning to art, I mean, I always have been an artist and I've always looked to art and photography and writing as a way of translating the world around me um, into something I understand better. But I think having the opportunity to really throw myself into it since my diagnosis has been very helpful. um, I've been writing a lot about my my own experiences, and some of that I've published, um, and some of that I haven't. Um, and I've been working as a photographer for um, an organization called Solumination. I've been volunteering, and they um, provide free photo shoots for families with critically ill uh, children, and I've been able to be a part of that, and that's been really incredible.
0: What is that? Process been like for you to photograph these moments with very young children, even babies, uh, who are about to take their last breath, and you are in the room taking these photographs. Tell me, tell me the process of what happens, how you are invited to uh, observe these moments, and and how you go about doing it with your camera.
1: Um, you know, I think I'm figuring it out every time I go in the room. It's different. Uh, what happens is I'm on call and so if there's a photo shoot that comes up that they think I'm a good match for or just one that um, I've agreed to do end-of-life sessions and a lot of the photo shoots aren't end-of-life some of them are just families with kids that are sick and they really want to document their their family Um, but I've agreed to do these end-of-life sessions and so I think when that comes up I'm often contacted and sometimes it's you know an hour's notice and I'll go um, to the hospital and I'll find out what room they're in and kind of just step in. Sometimes I don't even introduce myself. I, You know, if the opportunity comes up, I do. But often they are so wrapped up in what's going on for them that my job is to kind of just be a quiet presence, saving the moments that they will want to remember. So, you know, uh, uh, holding their child's hand or... Um, their their siblings getting to hold the baby for the last time, and those things are really important, and in that space they don't they can't capture them themselves and so my job I think is to almost if they don't if they don't know I'm there, that's almost better because I want it to be just them focused on their family and then have this these things to hold on to after The first
0: time you went in and had to take a photograph like that must have been extremely challenging.
1: It was it was very difficult. Um, I you know I work in social work and crisis management at, at least before I got sick. and so I have a little bit of that practice put a, kind of putting my emotions on on pause so I can do the job I need to do. But it's very hard. I mean I I watched um, a little boy say goodbye to his sister and I was just it was just very painful and sad. And it's it takes strength to kind of notice. Okay, what is the good that's happening here? You know, what parts of this grief can I find love within? And that's what I really tried to focus on. And um, I didn't know when to step out of the room and give them space. And I just had to trust my instinct and my own experience being in crisis situations in the hospital.
0: I know most of the work that you're doing is confidential. Are there any stories that you could share? Uh, and you also had this beautiful op-ed page piece in the New York Times, "What I Learned Photographing Death," in which you were able to talk a little bit about the family and the child and 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 show a photograph. Can you describe that?
1: Yeah. So the photograph is a is a picture of a baby who um, had um, kind of complications that were gonna result in him passing away either a few hours, a few days. Um, they weren't sure, but they knew he wasn't gonna be able to survive long. So I was actually in the operating room when he was born and I was able to take pictures of him and take pictures of him as his. they laid his body on his mom's um, chest and his hand kind of was across his mom's face. Um, and that moment of pure connection and love I'm so grateful I got to be able to be there to witness it and also to photograph it because to me, it was such a expression of connection between these two, these two people and this baby that um, did not get to have the life and the length of life he deserved. Um, And it was, it was incredible to be there for that.
0: Uh, Are there any other uh, stories like that, that sort of stay in your mind and, and encourage you to do more of this
1: work? Um, the three, you know, the the first one I did that I was talking about, the three year old who passed away. Um, seeing the way her family was there and the way when her brother was saying goodbye to her, the way her, the mom handled that situation and how gently she explained what was happening to the little boy really inspired me, and kind of altered the way I think about death and think about these tragedies. Because there was so much pain in that room, and there was also just the, the example or the evidence of how much they loved each other was really clear. Um, I recently did a few uh, NICU shoots, and there was a family who um, took their baby outside. Um, and that was really wonderful to see just so that the baby could you know experience being outside, and that was really lovely.
0: And how do the doctors and surgeons respond to having you in the room?
1: I think that they know... Um, about they know they've used uh, the services of Solimination enough and they know their mission. And so they kind of let me do my thing and they're aware of my job. And I think Illumination is very respected within the hospitals that I work in. And so they know when I come in and say, you know, I'm working with Soul, and here's, here's my name and here's who I'm here to photograph. Um, and so they, they give me the space to do that. And all of these doctors and nurses that are in these rooms too I have just experienced nothing but deep caring from them. I think often these children have been in the hospital for quite some time or have been sick for quite some time, and so they've developed a relationship and they're just as grateful to have someone documenting as um, as the families are. For those of
0: us who are photographers, the, the real joy of photographing people is the ability to share those images. But most of the photos that you're taking will will never be released and they're just handed over to the families for them to to have and to so that they can remember that moment uh how does it feel to know that perhaps some of your best work will never be seen in public?
1: you know that's that's a great question because it often is the case where I'm so proud of these images, and I know that they they're not mine you know I think it's interesting it really feels like I'm there as a tool of of translation, as I've said, just to kind of transfer these moments for them to keep. And it's definitely hard. I think there's work I'd love to show. And I also know what my job is and what I'm there to do. Um, and that is kind of always in my mind. And I think meeting the families, it, the priority that is, you know, giving them a gift is very clear to me when I'm there.
0: And how has this act of photographing end of life moments for others helped you deal with your own illness?
1: I think it's made it less scary. I think all of a sudden, I mean, it's, it's still scary. But when I'm there, I can see the reality of what death looks like. And sometimes it's, you know, sometimes there's humor there and great moments of, Um, people loving each other. And I think death is something that's inevitable for all of us. And so facing that and facing what it actually looks like makes this huge thing that I can see someday coming a a lot less foreign and a lot less scary. And it likely
0: probably has changed how you view the grieving process, hasn't it?
1: It has. I think it's connected me to my own grief and the grief of other people in a way that's really, really wonderful. I think I've, I've been able to see how much grief is rooted in love. And that's been a huge um, gift for me when I think about my own family grieving and, you know, my own, my own grief over my illness. Do
0: the people you photograph, the families, do they know that you yourself have this, this um, incurable cancer?
1: No, for not for the most part. I mean, I usually wear um, my hair is starting to come back now. But when I really didn't have any hair, I would wear a hat or a scarf around my head because I you know, it's just it, those moments aren't about me. I think when I'm in the same hospital that I was treated in and the same ICU Um, Not, you know, I'll be in the NICU or something, but it's similar to the ICU I was in. I definitely have moments where I'm like, oh my gosh, that's a similar scene or a similar hallway. Um, And sometimes I'll share little pieces of that with the doctors, but generally with the families, I, you know, they don't know and I don't tell them anything about it.
0: But your work is probably really inspiring to young people, others who are in the same situation and who have to... Yeah, Mm
1: yeah. Yeah, so what, it's different when I'm working with an older like a teenager. Um, because when I work with a teenager or a kid that is maybe not at the very end of their life, I do use my own experience to connect with them. Um, I think I worked with a, a teenager who was um nearing the end of her cancer treatment and I offered to take off, you know, my hat if she would take off hers and we could be bald together. Um and things like that are really helpful. Um, I think I I do use those tools of connection when I'm not in kind of the same dire situations, and that makes a big impact.
0: Now you've got a long road ahead with in terms of your chemo, right?
1: I do uh, at least three more months, maybe
0: nine more months. How do you how do you plan to navigate those three to six to nine months in terms of life and work and family and your own uh, coming to terms with all of this?
1: You know, I think I reached a point in the last month really where i i i've been I've been putting my life on hold and I've been like, you know I'm gonna wait and see what happens and wait and see what happens and I realized my life is possibly too short to do that um I need to live as much as I can while I'm alive and so I just signed up to go back to school um part time very part time in the fall I'm gonna keep writing I keep doing photo during the day and take a few evening classes um And move forward with what I have wanted to do because I think if I don't, uh, I will really regret that and I would love to experience as much of life as I can.
0: Is there any one thing you try to do every single day as a way of celebrating life?
1: I think I practice gratitude a lot. I think I don't always, you know, the other day I was actually just... Eating blueberries, weirdly enough, and I was like, I love blueberries. I'm gonna, I would miss, the, you know. There's just simple things like summer, you know, having to have food in the summer and be in the sun, and all these things that I get really stuck on. And I say, you know, I'm really gonna miss this. And I try to reframe it as, oh my gosh, I'm so grateful that I get to eat some fruit in the sun and be with the people I love. And every time I can switch it around, it feels less, less hard to bear.
0: Yeah, they say that gratitude is the most powerful emotion in the world.
1: I think it's helped me beyond description. I think being able to look at the things that are really important to me and say, I get to have this right now and I'm so grateful for that is huge. And that doesn't mean I'm not angry sometimes and really sad other times, but when I'm able to be focused on where I am and happy, I try to take advantage of that.
0: And do you continue to, uh, will you continue to photograph uh, end of life moments?
1: I hope to be able to do that as long as I am able to move. <laughs> um, I, it's really important to me and it's it's been a hugely healing in a lot of ways. So that's my goal. Caroline, this has been a very inspiring conversation. Do you have
0: any closing thoughts?
1: You know, I think what I was saying earlier about advocating for yourself, um, I would just encourage anybody that's in any kind of similar situation to stand up for what they believe in and um, what they believe their body is doing and feeling and then if you're met with kind of a huge a huge tragedy of any kind, um, I don't believe everything happens for a reason. I don't think that's fair to say, but I think there's everything, in every situation, something can make you more and something can make you um, a different person and for look, to look for the good in that.
0: Where can people read more about you and see your writing and your photography?
1: Uh, I have a website. So it's my first name and last name, carolinecatlin.com. And um, I think that would probably be the best place. And hopefully uh, there'll be more of my writing out in the world sometime soon.
0: Caroline, thank you so much for joining us and for sharing your story.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Caroline Catlin is a writer and photographer. She's undergoing treatment for incurable brain cancer. Caroline documents those final precious end-of-life moments for families. Thank you for listening to When It Mattered. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. And if you like the show, please rate it five stars, leave a review, and do recommend it to your friends, family, and colleagues. When It Mattered is a weekly leadership podcast produced by Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups find their narrative. For questions, comments, and transcripts, please visit our website at goodstory.io or send us an email at podcast at goodstory.io. Our producer is Jeremy Core, founder and CEO of Executive Podcasting Solutions. Our theme song is composed by Jack Jaegerlein. Join us next week for another edition of When It Mattered. I'll see you then.